Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Catherine Haddon. Not every Prime Minister gets an ism. Blair did, Thatcher did, but we don't talk of Atleyism, Mayism or Majorism. Two years into Boris Johnson's premiership and, with much of it overtaken by getting Brexit done and then getting to grips with Covid, how much can we tell about what defines or guides this Prime Minister? Is there a set of principles, values and beliefs that people understand to be at the core of Boris Johnson's thinking? Is there a set of principles, values and beliefs that Boris Johnson understands to be at the core of his thinking? (laughs) And if there is, or even if there isn't, does the nature of it matter to the Conservative Party? Does it matter to the functioning of government? Does it matter to the voters? That's what we're here to discuss today, and I'm joined by an excellent panel well-versed in all of the isms. Matthew Paris is a columnist for The Times, former Conservative MP and a former sketch writer for The Times. Matthew, thanks for being here. Nice to be here. Isabel Hardman is assistant editor at The Spectator, a regular Week in Westminster presenter and author of Why We Get the Wrong Politicians, as well as her new book, The Natural Health Service. Isabel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hello. And Tim Bale is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary, University of London, and has written at least two books on the Conservatives, as well as much more on political parties, general elections and Ed Miliband. Hi, Tim. Hi there. Okay, well, let's kick off talking about whether political philosophy matters. Before we get to Johnson himself, does political philosophy matter? Why does it not? And if so, why not? Tim, can I start with you? Why are we even debating this? How much do you think prime ministers need a sense of guiding philosophy to get them going in the job? Well, I mean, I think it is true to say that uh, any prime minister needs some kind of lodestar to, to steer by, if you like. I mean, to use that old fashioned metaphor of the, the ship of state. I mean, I think uh, unless, you know, there is some kind of north star, as it were, to guide a prime minister, then he or she does risk not necessarily steering the whole thing onto the rocks, but at least getting stuck in in the doldrums. And I think philosophy or ideology might be a better um, term is important to parties more generally because it it really helps glue parties together, both in parliament and outside of parliament. Um, ideologies are to some extent the inspiration that caused people to join parties in in the first place. And of course, ideologies send out a signal to voters. They're a, a shortcut, if you like, for voters who otherwise would be faced with a, a kind of chaotic series of alternatives that would make elections actually very, very difficult. So they're important in all sorts of ways. I think the main thing is, though, is that they don't become too doctrinaire. They become, if you like, a, a kind of ethos rather than a kind of rigid dogma that uh, politicians feel that they have to follow. And I mean, how much has this mattered in the past? I mean, Churchill and Attlee are probably held up by their parties as their greatest leaders, but neither really has an ism. We might talk about Churchillian as a sort of style of person of statesmanship or, or whatever, but not really their political philosophies as identified with them as the person so much. Or is, am I being a bit unfair? No, I don't, I don't think you are. I mean, I think certainly in Attlee's case, while there might not be an Attleeism, we are certainly talking there about someone who was very clearly a democratic socialist. And I guess that then raises the question of of how important, and it's one you, you've touched on, uh, the actual prime minister themselves is to the development or the, the extension of, of the ideology of their party more generally. 
I think it's perfectly acceptable, if you like, for a, a prime minister to to rely more generally on his or her party's ideology rather than necessarily seeking to uh, you know, forge a, a particular brand of their own. Matthew, can we turn then a bit to to parties and that sort of uh, you know doctrinal allegiance there? The Conservatives, though, have, have long been held as the pragmatic party. I mean, it has its factions and its different brands of conservatism, but does ideology matter crucially to it, or is it winning and adjusting to the public mood that um, is more important? I don't think that ideology, in any sort of academic sense of that word, matters much to the. Conservative Party, I, I, I would say instincts rather than ideology. There's a wonderful line in the picture of Dorian Gray describing an, an old Tory, and uh, the author, Wilde, uh, remarks that on issues of, uh, of fact, he was thoroughly out of date, but there was much to be said for his instincts. So I think the Conservative Party has instincts rather than ideology. I don't think that leaders of, of parties need ideologies. I think they just need power. They, their main ideology may just be power. But I think they need to look as if they know where they're going. And I think the Conservative Party needs a leader that looks as though he or she knows where they're going. But I wouldn't, I w- really wouldn't dignify it with the, the term ideology. Okay, well, I mean, let's talk about that in terms of Thatcher. I mean, she was famous for her instincts and yet is one of the more famous isms, Thatcherism. But was this something really that was applied to her governments retrospectively rather than, you know, something she was cultivating during the time? Absolutely. I think she liked to think that she had an ideology, and but I think an ideology was constructed around her by the rest of the world, by observers and uh, those close to her, and as you can read in many memoirs of many of her cabinet ministers, knew that she was very capable of, of, of shifting, switching tack, abandoning one line and, and taking another. She was a much more pragmatic person than she seemed to be. But this seeming to be led by, by principle anyway, I think was very important to her image. But to some extent, I, I think it was a bit of a mirage. Isabel, can I bring you in here and just talk a bit more about the Conservatives? I mean, Matthew said that, you know, it's more instincts and principles. Perhaps we could talk about, you know, political philosophy, but but not use the word ideology so much. But how much does that matter to the party's base, do you think? Or is it, again, more about being seen to be competent? I mean, I think the Conservatives are far less concerned uh, with ideology than the Labour Party uh, for instance, so I think that its membership believes in winning and being in power to, to a much greater extent. And we've definitely seen that uh, be the case over the past, well, decade, really, for, for both parties. But there are some things that Conservative members do seem to find hard to stomach uh, when the party, in their view, diverts from its its sort of core beliefs. We see a, a lot of the time the, the fights over the planning system, for instance, where you've got senior Conservatives in government who think that if they don't get more homes built, then they will lose their upcoming constituency of voters, which is homeowners, because they're the the average age of the homeowner is just getting older and older and older, and it's, it's getting harder and harder to to replace uh, conservative voters who um, who pass away with young voters who who want to, to vote conservative, who've got the sort of natural 
backgrounds in terms of owning a home and so on to make them uh, more inclined towards the Conservatives. And then you have the, the conflict between uh, that view in the, the party nationally and the anxieties of traditional Shire Tories about their green spaces being built on inappropriately, often feeling as though they're being uh, described as being NIMBYs. And, you know, you, you talk to both camps uh, and they'll say that that uh, badge is either unfair or, or totally reasonable, given that these these members will object to, to building whatever the, the sort of reforms that are being brought in. But, but, but that's, that's an example of where actually the sort of the deep ideological conservative, small C conservatism does uh, still linger in the, in the wider party. Uh, and again, you know, you, you see this on, on other matters. I think over the pandemic, we've seen a, a discomfort amongst some Conservative MPs with just the, the sheer amount of money that is being spent by the government on, on the furlough scheme. I've, I've talked to a lot of Tories over the past year who've said, you know, we've basically ended up with the spending plans of Jeremy Corbyn, who we uh, criticised so heavily in the 2019 election and defeated. And, and how is this right that we've ended up in this position? Uh, now, you could say that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't campaigning for there to be a pandemic so that he could spend all this money. And it is a rather different situation. But but again, there's a sort of discomfort with a, a flexibility um, that's been shown by the party on on spending and indeed on, on lockdown restrictions. But I think if you're going to look at Johnsonism, I think it, it's really interesting to see how the pandemic has erased some of Boris Johnson's um, more ideological stances. So he's always been, I think, a conservative who believes in not winning at all costs, but who believes in being ideologically flexible, shall we say, in order to um, ensure that he he can win. We saw that with the, the London living wage, for instance, and various other things that he did when he was mayor of London. And I think we saw the sort of last vestiges of his of his real ideology during the pandemic at the start, where he was very uncomfortable with the idea of lockdown, with the idea of the government telling people what to do. And he believed initially that you could trust the public to lock themselves away. And I think we're, you know, we're obviously seeing that now as restrictions start to lift over these summer months. He's hoping that, that his, um, his instincts will be right. But he was proved wrong. And he realised that he was going to have to go for the sort of thing that someone with libertarian instincts like him was deeply uncomfortable with. And we've seen him having to abandon those instincts during this pandemic, which has been uncomfortable for him. We'll probe a bit further on that ability to be able to adjust further. You touched on something there that actually I'd like to bring in others on, Matthew, Tim. Have we moved from more of an approach where it's about the economy when we think about the Conservatives and and the Labour Party of the 1970s onwards to it being more about social issues? There's a lot of talk, obviously, these days about culture wars. Brexit has been a huge challenge and there have been economic arguments there, but a lot of it has been about identity and so forth. Have we moved away from sort of political philosophies largely focused on economics or was it always a bit of both? I don't think we have. I think we've all been scared out of our wits by by the pandemic, but um, normal service will be resumed fairly soon and we'll get back to um, how things affect our own back pockets. I, I agree with my Times colleague Danny Finkelstein on that. It, it's the economy, stupid, is still true. And uh, if uh, Boris Johnson can make people feel a little more secure financially, if he can make them a little richer or think that they're a little richer, 
then um, he's there for quite a long time, I think. I would agree, actually. I mean, uh, I think if you do look at the root of um, conservative instincts, if we want to call them that, you know, I think they are founded on the belief that the, the state should be as, as small as possible and that therefore tax and spending and borrowing should be kept as low as possible. I don't think that's gone away and the pandemic won't have made any difference to that. If anything, as Isabel hinted, actually, there's probably a now a, a heightened concern about those issues, certainly in the, the parliamentary party and probably as well in the party uh, as a whole. I think, though, Kath, you are right to say clearly questions of identity, social issues uh, have always been important in the Conservative Party, you know, for some people more than others. But people are often more flexible than perhaps even they themselves think. And, and one example would be gay marriage, which is, is something that's uh, taken for granted now, even by many Conservatives who you know, when David Cameron first introduced it, were up in arms. Some of them resigned from the party. Uh, MPs were getting all sorts of letters from constituency associations about it. And now, in some ways, that, that goes to show just how important identity issues are. But it also goes to show, as we've already been discussing, quite how pragmatic some Conservatives can, can sometimes be. And And after all, you know, one of the things that those who do make philosophical interventions uh, in the Conservative Party have always said that, that one of the, the key things about conservatism is, you know, changing where you need to in order to preserve those things that are really at root much more important. Can we just point uh, compare this perhaps to the Labour Party as we talked a bit about the Conservatives? I mean, since Blair, well, since leaving office in 2010, they've been through, uh, shall we call it a period of adjustment? Do you think by their nature they are a more ideological party? And if so, where does that stem from? Well, I mean, I think the Labour Party, like most social democratic parties, ended up giving itself fairly early on, actually, a, a constitution which had, you know, political aims and objectives mm. spelled out, something that the Conservatives, generally speaking, have, I think, very sensibly avoided doing. That means, therefore, that there is always a, a set of criteria against which its more purist members can judge the party and, and find it wanting. One of the advantages, and in some ways it's, it's rather like the advantages of a, an uncodified constitution uh, that the Conservative Party has, is that there is no you know, set of tablets in stone which, which its members can point to and say to the leader, you know, you've committed to this, you've moved away from it, what are you going to do about it? And, and that gives Conservative leaders a, a good deal more freedom than their Labour Party counterparts. Isabel, I mean, we talked a bit about the public and whether they care about this, what role political philosophy plays for them in understanding it. But I mean, perhaps the most recent recognisable use of that suffix, the ism, was applied to Corbynism. Uh, do you think the public are turned off by too much ideology or is it just the wrong kind? I think it's probably the, the wrong kind or, or at least a, an inflexibility around that ideology. I mean, one of the things about Jeremy Corbyn's political views was, as many people said, they hadn't really changed for 30, 40 years. And uh, he was talking about things that, that either people hadn't been born when he'd formed his political views or 
the people most likely to vote remembered very well the the sort of ugliness of some of the Labour Party debates in the 1980s and thought I don't want anything to do with that and you know they were a lost cause then and and that's how I see them as being now when Jeremy Corbyn was leader so I think it's probably more that it's uh, an ideology that that Brits have seen before um, or that that is is quite obviously not really particularly popular within Britain. I mean, I think part of the problem was that Jeremy Corbyn didn't really like Britain very much and it was quite easy to to caricature um, him as as being uh, more friendly with people who uh, dislike the West than actually wanting to stand up for Western values. Okay, let's turn to Johnson himself. When Boris Johnson first became Prime Minister, three parts of his first speech as Prime Minister stood out to me. Uh, Delivering Brexit was, of course, front and centre, but also his line, the people are our bosses, very much betraying himself as the champion of the people. And then thirdly, perhaps the trademark optimism, proving the doomsters and the gloomsters wrong. Matthew, you heard Isabel earlier on this, but do you think the real Boris Johnson has stood up yet or are we still to see uh, what kind of prime minister he wants to be? We've seen the real Boris Johnson. I don't think there's anything more than what we've seen. Uh, I think, uh, who was it who said, these are my principles and if you don't like them, I have others. To put it more colloquially, whatever floats your boat is Boris's guiding force. Um, He wants to be king of the world. He wants to be Prime Minister, and in with within reason, I think he'll he'll do anything and, and say anything uh, in order to achieve those two goals and in order to to maintain them. He does have instincts. His instincts are quite quite libertarian. Libertarian. He's not really a very judgmental or or censorious person. He he'd certainly better not be. Uh, but um, apart from those generally freewheeling buccaneering instincts. Uh, when he says the people are the boss, it is another way of saying these are my principles, but if you don't like them, I have others. Isabel, I mean, he's he's actually called himself, I think, a one nation conservative, but in recent rebellions, not least on foreign aid cuts, some of the others in his party have used the same term to define themselves apart from him. Uh, does the term mean anything anymore? That's a really interesting point that actually you're seeing a sort of schism within the one nation grouping of conservatives or, or at least uh, people who, who both see themselves as as one nation. I think Johnson is, as others have said, he's you know he is a chameleon, and I don't think he likes sitting within a tribe particularly. I think even sort of socially, he, he's not really someone with a group of friends, and I don't think he's someone with a group of political friends either. And so he, he probably has never really seen himself as deep down as as being one sort of conservative or another. And I, th- I mean, I would say that also, I mean, one nation has always been a, an incredibly um, contested term within the Conservative Party and without, I mean, without it, it tends to be simply a shorthand for people who, you know, are on, if you like, the centre left of the party, even though the history of the one nation group, you know, beginning in the, the late 1940s and, and, and having its antecedents in Disraeli and, uh, and Baldwin is, is, is rather more complex. So it's a label that uh, people appropriate for themselves or is stuck on people, which isn't always particularly accurate. Um, but I do agree with Isabel that I think um, uh, Boris Johnson, you know, tends not to be want to be labelled 
for precisely the, the reasons that, that Matthew gives, because it actually reduces his room for manoeuvre. And it's all about room for manoeuvre with him because, you know, to, to coin a phrase of Dominic Cummings, you know, it's by any means necessary, you know, whatever it takes to to keep him in the job and to get him the job in the first place. Uh, that's That's what Boris Johnson will do, uh, one can argue. But having said that, I mean, I I do think, you know, Matthew's right when he talks about this lack of censoriousness, that is where Boris Johnson, you know, taps into a a more traditional Toryism. I mean, which, you know, some people would argue goes right back to the Civil War and there's all this talk of cavaliers and roundheads, etc. But I think we can locate it, you know, without sounding too highfalutin, you know, back in in, in the 19th century, where you have a conservative party, which is the party of agriculture, of the brewing interest, uh, which sees itself in in that century sort of facing off against these rather more censorious, you know, pious, nonconformist commercial classes who supported the, the, the Liberal Party. You know, I, I think one thing that Boris Johnson does very well and, and, and one thing that is in, in some ways the key to his popularity more generally is he... As well as you know, communicating, and it goes back to something Isabel said about Jeremy Corbyn. As well as communicating that he likes the country, he communicates the idea that he wants people to have fun, if you like. Uh, and I think that is actually quite a powerful message um, to yeah. people. And one of the problems I think the Labour Party has got is that it's always seen as, as in some ways, wanting to. Uh, to stop people having fun. And I think that is a big advantage that the Conservative Party have long had over the Labour Party. It feels more like it's the Boris Johnson brand rather than a political philosophy that is at the core of how he he portrays himself. Can we just probe a little bit on what this actually means for government, though? I mean, uh, Matthew, I remember Thatcher's famous phrase asking whether or not people were one of us. That was really about how much she could trust them to understand her approach and her instincts and, and deliver what she wants. How much do you think Johnson's approach affects the way in which he's constructed his cabinet? Obviously, he got them all to be signing up to Brexit. But will he? Does he need some kind of consistency to be able to hold his cabinet together? To be able to hold his government together? More than anything, I think what Boris Johnson needs is his political success. He needs to stay high in the polls. He needs to be reassuring conservative backbenchers that he's going to help them win, retain their seats at the next general election. And as long as he's doing that, I don't think it particularly matters how he does it or what he says. It's certainly true, as as Tim was saying, it's certainly true that the the killjoy side of politics in Britain and the killjoy side of moral debate in Britain uh, is is for the Labour Party, and he is definitely not on that side. But as long as he can just give people the impression that, you know, it's all a bit of a ball and things are not not so bad Mm. and it's getting better and if the sun isn't out now, the sun will be coming out soon. I honestly think... There isn't anything more to be said about Boris Johnson's uh, political instincts, his doctrines or, or his ideology. He's, he's a pretty freewheeling character. Tim, can I just turn to you a bit? Because, I mean, one of the things that Dominic Cummings, who, you know, perhaps I don't know whether you feel he did have a guiding philosophy or not, that doesn't perhaps matter. But one of the things he said about Boris Johnson was he called him a shopping trolley swinging from side to side mm. in the aisle. And I mean, from the Institutes for Government's point of view, we think about how all of this matters for governing. And you know that Whitehall spends its time worrying about what the number 10 take will be on any given issue, you know, trying to understand the overarching approach to anticipate the needs of the government. Does it matter for them? Do they need to know that the prime minister, where he's coming from, what his instincts are and how he's likely to react? 
Oh, I mean, I think it's undoubtedly true, if you know anything about central government, that um, civil servants in, in other ministries and other departments uh, are continually worrying about you know, whether what they want to do has the seal of approval from number 10 or, or whether it's likely to be stymied from that direction. I suppose one of the advantages that having someone like Dominic Cummings there had for civil servants, even though some of them obviously weren't particularly keen on him, was at least perhaps there was a, a sense of a, a kind of overall um, direction, even though it also involved shaking up uh, Whitehall in ways that, that a lot of civil servants um, clearly uh, objected to. I think one of the concerns when Dominic Cummings went was that we would see, you know, the, the shopping trolley via uh, not only across the aisles, but into other aisles and, and smash into all sorts of things that would make it very, very difficult to govern. Then again, I think we, we need to be careful, and I don't really need to tell anyone from the Institute for Government this, that we don't buy wholly into the idea that we have a completely presidentialized system in this country. Mm. I think, you know, whatever uh, has been revealed by, by Dominic Cummings, various contributions over the, the months since he's departed, we still have a degree of cabinet government and we still have some cabinet ministers who are, you know, competent and uh, powerful. It's easy to write the whole lot off as a complete shower. Um, but I think it's quite difficult to do that with some of them, uh, most obviously, for example, Rishi Sunak. And mm. I don't think we can forget that, that those steers are also produced from the Treasury, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and also from strong departmental ministers, of whom there are some, despite you know, what many of us uh, may think of the government uh, as a whole. Yeah, I wanted to probe that actually a bit, because I mean, I completely take Matthew's point that, you know, the cabinet will stay in line whilst Boris Johnson seems in the ascendancy. But you always get people who are looking to the future, looking to develop their own relationships in the party, develop their own brand and so forth. And I'm interested in how much political philosophy will play a part in that. I mean, Isabel, do you think we'll see a growing Sunakism? particularly about the economy, perhaps we're already seeing signs of it trying to pull back the public finances post-COVID. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that um, when he was interviewed recently by Andrew Neil, Rishi Sunak was very quick to say, I'm a fiscal conservative. Now, you might expect a chancellor to say that anyway, given um, given the challenges of, of, of their job. But I thought that was an interesting tack back from the language that he used at the start of the pandemic, where he was very, very keen to say, you know, we have behaved without ideology, without dogma. And actually, he, he's saying really now that uh, we're, we're starting to go back to politics as usual, and it is time to to stick to your um, to your first principles, to your beliefs as a politician. And so I think we will start to see um, a Sunakism that is tailored to the sort of the new normal post-pandemic, but it's also grounded more in normal politics as opposed to pandemic politics. Matthew, I mean, we talked a bit about Labour earlier on and, and certainly about Jeremy Corbyn. One of the criticisms that's been thrown about uh, Keir Starmer is his almost lack of a vision or a guiding principle or or anything. I mean, is, is Boris Johnson's pragmatism, his ability to move around, is that a problem for the opposition? Does it remove room for manoeuvre for them? I think it's a real problem for an opposition that does not have a clear sense of direction itself. And I think that Keir Starmer has failed to impart that sense of 
direction to the Labour Party. You remember the early days of Keir, we were all saying, oh, you know, it's, it's virtually the return of, of, of new Labour. This is a, a profoundly convinced centrist and uh, he knows where he's going and it's uh, the other way from Jeremy Corbyn. But that all seems to have dissolved. And if the shopping trolley analogy applies to anyone, I think it applies as much to Keir Starmer as it does to, to Boris Johnson. And so for someone like Keir Starmer, who hasn't really or doesn't really seem to have anything to say himself about where we should be going, a prime minister who does fear all over the place and just puts his finger to the wind and acts accordingly is probably a nightmare. And I think a nightmare for civil servants too. I I really think that the Downing Street we've got must be really hard for civil servants and that Rishi Sunak is the only serious intellectual force within the cabinet apart from the the Prime Minister, I, I wouldn't I- exaggerate the importance of any of the others. I, I think Tim's being a little bit optimistic. <laughs> Tim, what about you on Labour? Do you think there's prospects for them to sort of develop their own brand, their own positioning uh, in the coming years against Boris Johnson, or are they just waiting their time out? Well, I, I think your question to Matthew, Matthew's reply is quite interesting on, uh, in that respect. I mean, I, I think one of the concerns that that Labour must have is that they don't want to develop too uh, strong an identity in some ways um, when they're facing a, a a prime minister who is willing you know to change in in quite radical ways um, which then may leave them high and dry as the election hose into view and they're also of course concerned that Boris Johnson might not necessarily be the prime minister who who leads the conservative party into the next election although i i happen to think he he probably will be i mean keir starmer has possibly got a chance to reset um now you know the labor party is out from under the 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 batley and spen disaster that may have been but again you know much like matthew says about the the conservative party one of the the things that keir starmer also has to deal with is the fact that Labour doesn't have many big beasts either. So uh, unless he can really stamp his authority and create his own brand uh, of of Labour Party politics, I I think, you know, Labour is going to struggle in that respect. I would say, however, that, you know, coming back to, you know, the earlier discussion we had about the role of ideology in the Conservative Party, you know, we we haven't, for example, touched on Euroscepticism. And that's relevant to, to Boris Johnson, and that's clearly relevant to, to the Labour Party. You know, Euroscepticism did become something of an e-day fix for, for many people in the Conservative Party. It was something that Boris Johnson leapt onto, perhaps, as a kind of bandwagon, although he was always a, a bit of a Eurosceptic um, himself. And that's got us to Brexit. You know, it, we may well find if and when the pandemic begins to recede, that, you know, Brexit becomes you know, slightly less popular. It throws up some, some problems for the British economy and maybe even for the British constitution, which, you know, Labour are, are able to exploit. So, you know, I, I don't think it's all over for Labour uh, right now, but clearly any government with the kind of poll lead that the, the Conservatives have in, in, in midterm and who won the kind of majority that the Conservatives won back in 2019 looked pretty set fair, really, to win the next election, almost whatever Labour does. 
But on that front, I mean, Isabel, assuming, I mean, perhaps you could tell us what you think, but assuming that Johnson is staying on to the, the next election, we talked a bit about his ability to tack. What are the things he'll be looking for? What are the wins he'll be looking for, though? Is it, you know, these new MPs, the Red Wall MPs holding on to them? Is it the, the you know, traditional base? Is it his MPs indeed? Or is it the voters more generally and focus groups and so forth? Where does he look to try and guide himself? Yeah, I think it's really interesting uh, that there is, I think there is a real conflict for Boris Johnson uh, in his mind. And I'm not sure he entirely knows how to reconcile this or indeed how to define some of the things that he uh, that he managed to, to get elected on. So levelling up, for instance, we've, we've had this summer a consultation launched on what people want levelling up to be, which seems like a bit of a... Uh, well, a bit of a surprise given the amount of time that has uh, passed between the 2019 election and now. You'd expect mm. that, firstly, Conservative MPs uh, campaigning in that election might have picked up from voters on the doorstep what they wanted levelling up to be. Their doorstep tends to be a pretty good consultation exercise in and of itself. And uh, and so there's, you know, there's how do you manage to retain red wall voters who've given their votes to the Conservatives rather than crossed over for, um, for the long term. And then there's the anxiety amongst uh, blue wall Conservative MPs in the Shire seats uh, who are facing, you know, the Lib Dems at least claim is a Lib Dem resurgence who um, feel as though they're being ignored. Talk to both sides and they think they're being ignored. So the Northern Research Group of Conservative MPs was formed, they say, largely because they felt they had to do a sort of megaphone campaigning because they weren't being listened to. But then there's a, you know, WhatsApp group, uh, which is always the way nowadays of working out where the sort of tides and factions are in the party, mm. a WhatsApp group of Conservative MPs in Lib Dem facing seats who have been very upset since the Cheshire and Amersham by-election and don't actually feel yet that the party is taking them seriously following that result. Matthew, do you think that's Boris Johnson's greatest risk, that he, he wants to be, as it were, the man for all seasons and that he might raise expectations beyond which he can deliver? The trouble is that um, nobody any longer believes the promises that he makes. They just say, oh, that, that's Boris. Remember, this July the 19th thing was going to be irreversible, and, and now it's, it's not irreversible. And, and, and so it is with everything uh, that he says. It's, it's, um, it's mood music that he gives people, and the hard promises he makes, I don't think anybody relies on, nor will they be specially disappointed uh, or disapproving if, if they don't happen. You know, there is a little bit of a danger that we 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 talk we like to talk about doctrine and ideology and guiding principles and and core visions and and dreams and all those things. And of course, they are important and they do guide human beings, including political leaders, uh, to some degree. But you have to remember, there's a there's a hard world out there with some very hard surfaces that you will just bump into, whatever your dream or vision is. I'm sure the Conservative Party would love to level up and would do anything they, they could if someone could tell them how you level up. But nobody really knows how you do level up or whether it's even possible to to level up. And, and that's the problem. So we can talk about the ideology, the drive, the, the direction and everything. But there you've got a big practical problem. Uh, how do you um, swing the, the balance of wealth away from parts of England and in favour of others? And the truth is, no one knows how to do it. And it might be better sometimes to talk about that than to talk about what we think Boris would like to do. 
Okay, final thought then for this. I mean, we've, yes, we've talked quite a bit about, you know, doctrine and ideology and so forth. But really, a lot of this is also about legacy and the way in which prime ministers get remembered. So a question to uh, all of you or any of you who wants to take it on. How much of what we've been talking about today, the brand of Boris Johnson, the manoeuvrability, uh, the style that he, he's brought to all of this, how much of that is going to leave a legacy on British politics? Are we going to see others try to emulate him or is he a one-off? Well, I would say, I mean, if Boris Johnson has uh, a legacy, it will be about rescuing a Conservative Party that was essentially on the edge of a nervous breakdown when he first took over in the summer uh, of 2019 and winning it a famous election victory on the basis of getting Britain out of the European Union and whatever anybody will be able to say about Boris Johnson in the future, he will always be the Prime Minister who, for good or ill, achieved that. Uh, and to be honest, for, for many Prime Ministers, that I think is, is enough of a legacy, whatever else he manages to do in the meantime. Matthew, will it, will it be a positive legacy for the Conservative Party then? It could be if he gets out in time, and I think he probably will. Um, he's a classicist. He knows about uh, hubris and nemesis. And I, I believe that he is privately very afraid of, of nemesis. And uh, as soon as he feels that he's won, in some sense, he'll, he'll, he'll go. He, he'll know how to quit when he's winning. And I think what he'll leave behind if he's been successful will be a personality, a political personality floating in history, as Disraeli. I, I do think Disraeli is quite an important uh, parallel with, with Boris Johnson. I dare say historians could tell us what Disraeli's great policy achievements were, but most of us just think of Disraeli the man. And I think Boris would probably like to be remembered as Boris the man, and there's a good chance he will be. Isabel, do you agree? Yes, I think I, I, think I do agree that, that the emphasis uh, really is on Boris uh, Boris the brand and uh, people will try to emulate that and we've seen that actually with Rishi Sunak who was you know branding himself as Rishi with all those signatures all over the spending pledges although they seem to be disappearing now he's taking things away it's not so much Rishi branded cuts uh, anymore but um, but but he is a one-off politician particularly in his ability to to escape unscathed from situations that could have um, that could really have sunk many others. Okay, well, that seems like a good point to leave it, thinking ahead and whether or not um, in years to come we'll have hubris about whether or not what we said in this podcast turned out to be true or not. Okay, thank you, everyone. That's it for this special Inside Briefing podcast. Huge thanks to Isabel Hardman, Matthew Paris, and Tim Bale for a fascinating discussion. And if you like that, there's more IFG podcasts over at our sister channel, IFG Live, and also some fun episodes of Inside Briefing coming over the summer to keep you company on the beach or at home or wherever it is that you're taking a holiday. I'm not sure whether we've solved the riddle of whether Johnsonism will leave a legacy or whether it will just be Boris the brand. Maybe we'll find out over the next year or two years, but uh, whatever happens, do listen to our podcast and we'll see you next time. Oh,